Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And there we have to leave Great Voices for another week. That was a program from the 14th of September in 2010. That's over seven years ago now. It's Jan Bartlett and I'll be here until six o'clock and hello to Chris, I'm sure you're listening. Today we'll be talking about the technical fault last week. We won't be talking about the fault, but we'll play the part of the interview that didn't get played because of the technical fault and that was with Brian Newman and Bruce Francis and their visit to Palestine. The final segment for the year with Dr Margie Beavers from the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. What really happened at the demonstration in Flemington last night against Milo Yiannopoulos? The Sampari exhibition begins this week, West Papuan Culture and Struggle. I'll be speaking with Louise Byrne about lots of things pertaining through West Papua. And also elections coming up in Malaysia with Peter Boyle. But first, let's have it for Mr Kevin Healy and just see how he's getting on. A week, Jane, listener, when let's open with the That Wasn't Absolutely Necessary Award of the Week and Good News, Congratulations, Big Supremo Malcolm Tunnabull. Direct quote, announcing a Her Most Gracious Majesty's very gentle mission into the good, good banks. It's not going to put capitalism on trial which didn't come as the surprise of the week. So congratulations again, Malcolm. Your That Wasn't Absolutely Necessary Award is on the way. In the process, Malcolm attempted to achieve a long-term ambition to make the next Olympic diving team, completing a perfect triple backflip with double puke, while the government and Malcolm bent over backwards, so far that they ended up up but, but no, we won't go there, we'll be nice, bent over backwards to prove that the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Kanga mission into the evil trade unions was not a witch hunt by establishing the very gentle mission into the good, good banks. I can assure you, Malcolm assured us, this Her Most Gracious Majesty's very gentle mission will not be a witch hunt into the good, good banks. Although, let me correct you, the full title is the Her Most Gracious Majesty's very, very gentle mission into the good, good banks and not even slightly gentle con mission into the evil union super funds. Yes, as a number of Hayseed and Sheepshit Party MPs moved to get their own back for Malcolm, apparently it was all his fault. Malcolm not stopping the same-sex marriage 122 million diversion going the wrong way, the way of damned souls and eternity in the flames of hell, with Beelzebub making afterlife even more uncomfortable with his pitchfork, Malcolm stepped in to nip the danger in the butt. This way, we can determine the terms of reference after proper consultation with the good, good banks themselves of the hand the evil union super funds to the good, good banks commission, he explained. Uh, don't you mean the commission into the banks? Isn't that what I said? 
It's good that all these people ripped off by the almost daily bank scandals will be able to claim compensation, Malcolm. Uh, no, that won't be covered. We feel it is outside the scope of this very gentle mission, or the very gentle mission part of the scope, to look at such matters, uh, like the banks ripping off big time. Exactly. That is already in the public domain, so why waste time investigating what everyone knows? But the Minister for Smashing Evil Union Superfunds, Kelly Odawire, uh, Union So Evil, clarified, but we must protect good true blue Aussie mums and dads workers from the evil union bosses who sit on the boards of their super funds, which only perform better than the retail bank and financial institution funds by cheating their members. Uh, in what way, Kelly? by not extracting the huge fees banks and financial institutions quite properly charge, thereby undermining the sacred market forces principles of competition policy. Actually, Kelly did say, direct quote again, members' money should be protected from being misused by vested interests. So we hand it to the banks. Although Malcolm said it's not going to put capitalism on trial, hope he doesn't look too closely at the history of these things or he'll feel even more besieged, like another evil union witch hunt which ended up scraping his mates off the bottom of the harbour. Even if the chosen, yet another arch-conservative former High Court beak had the proper credentials of loving good, good banks and hating, hating, hating evil unions and workers irresponsible enough to join one, and we're not saying he is, but even if, sometimes things can go wrong, let's hope not. Let's hope the hand the evil union funds to our mate section of the commission achieves its aim and workers enjoy the benefits of those independent men and women in suits at their favourite bank. Great, great man in suit. When that white true patriot screamed Britain first as he murdered a Labour Party politician, he was proudly exercising his right to free speech and ensuring people like her, whose right to free speech he respects, are no longer able to exercise their right to free speech, but he would respect that right to the point of not murdering her if only her free speech agreed with his free speech, a point exercised by US of the UN of the US of the world big supremo Donald Trump or the poor as he twitted Britain first fascist material declared by everyone but Donald and the fascists and that great American institution the Ku Klux Klan as fake news. Believe me, great great me, believe me, fake news is not fake news when the fake news it's faking is not fake. This non-fake fake proves my anti-Islam restrictions are protecting good U.S. citizens who agree with me. Great me. Great. Uh, but you say your restrictions are not aimed at Muslims. These greatest ever restrictions ever in world history are not anti-Muslim. They are pro-me. The greatest pro-me ever. Great. Great. Everyone knows not everybody in those countries is Islam, and, and the restrictions don't apply to my very, very good friends, the liberty, freedom, and democracy, love, and Saudi royal family, for instance. U.S. Uh, are first. Very good. Very good. Sadly, to paraphrase a true blue Aussie saying, poor Donald may soon be in with Flynn.
as the twit twitted he knew his national security advisor had lied to just everyone and imagine how abraded Donald's sensitivities would be over someone lying to just everyone but then as the proverbial hit the fan fan I have the greatest number of fans ever great great uh, yes, OK, Donald, thanks. As the proverbial hit, his lawyer said he, the lawyer, had sent the twit. Apparently, sitting, sitting up till the wee small hours with Donald, then seizing Donald's smart thingy and twitting away, and Donald said it was terrible, terrible, that the FBI had not charged evil Hillary, but had charged a great man like his mate, the former senior trained killer, who, disturbingly, has pleaded guilty and promised to spill the beans. Showing, Donald assured us, the scales of justice teeter a little closer to the Oval Office, the FBI is a biased institution whose reputation for fairness is in tatters. And therein lies the solution to preserving liberty, freedom and democracy. Fire the FBI, which although he'd do it for all the wrong reasons, wouldn't be a bad result. We quoted last week from the How to Be a Politician manual, the section referring to post-state election comments. It had nothing to do with federal matters. That's rubbish. It was a vote on federal issues. Well, this week, Chapter 4, Section 8D. When someone in the other party is caught saying something inappropriate, scream, her, his position is untenable. She, he must resign. The party leader has no choice but to dismiss her, him. When someone in your party is caught saying something in a weak journalist, when let's open with the that wasn't absolutely necessary award of the week and good news, congratulations, big supremo Malcolm Tunner Bull. Direct quote, announcing a Her Most Gracious Majesty's very gentle mission into the good, good banks. It's not going to put capitalism on trial, which didn't come as the surprise of the week. So I just think this um, gremlin in the machine's having a go at me because it's done it again this week. That was Mr Kevin Healy, but um, we didn't quite get to the end of Mr Healy. But I'm not quite sure what is going on, but we will get to the bottom of it. This is Tuesday Home Time and this is Jen Bartlett. Join us to mark 100 years since the serenading of Adela Pankhurst, imprisoned at Pentridge for her anti-war activities. Serenading Adela, a street opera, recreates the summer night when hundreds of supporters sang socialist songs and cooeed over the prison walls. Come along to Pentridge on Sunday the 7th of January or catch our December preview. It's all free. For details, search Serenading Adela or email serenadingadela at gmail.com. A 3CR supporter. Regular listeners would have heard the technical problem last week in the last part of the interview with Bruce Francis and Brian Newman talking about their visit to Palestine. So here is the part which was missed last week. There's another museum you went to. It's called the, the New Palestine Museum. Yeah, the Palestinian Museum being built by a not-for-profit organisation, so it's not a government building and it's um, on the edge of Ramallah in the grounds of Betsa University. So you're now in Area 1, well, or Area, area A, a yeah. which is? Palestinian Controlled, controlled. 
Yep. So it's a stunning building that's won international architecture awards all over the world. It was built, opened a year ago, but has only just had the resources to put on its first exhibition. The exhibition was called Jerusalem Now, so it was a, a really powerful political exhibition around Jerusalem, perceptions of it, what it means to be there now and into the future. But the building itself sits on top of a hill where the vast garden as part of its building sliding down a hill with the most spectacular plantings, plantings all around the indigenous flora of the area. It was a fantastic exhibition that included you know, posters from South America of solidarity stuff, um, big explanations about the impact of the Israeli arms industry. Stuff around inequality and how Palestinians and Israelis are treated differently. A lot of stuff around the changing demographics and nature of um, Jerusalem since um, 67 through to now all done with beautiful infographics which were sort of like works of art but highly political and then other bits which were you know little statements around how the occupation had affected people you know a woman who had to pay her electricity bill at the post office but she lived in an area where there was no post office and couldn't get to a post office so she always had to find somebody to pay her electricity bill People who couldn't visit their girlfriends or boyfriends because one was from the West Bank and one was from Jerusalem. Various aspects, a lot of stuff around, you know, the arms industry within Israel and, you know, what they export, where they've intervened around the world. And then a lot of other more, so I guess, traditional sort of art um, and cultural sort of um, stuff from Palestine. Really stunning exhibition and a really beautiful window one of the windows in, in the museum is covered in graphics of coordinates of places. One of the a whole area of the museum had an artwork which was a series of GPS coordinates printed onto the windows that were then reflected onto the ground through the light, onto the floor. And they represented the GPS coordinates of the places that the artist isn't allowed to go to. And that stretched for 50 metres or something through this building. Absolutely beautiful. Certainly a place to put on your list if you're visiting Palestine. The other place uh, I think worth talking about was the El Ruad Cultural and Arts Society we went to, which is a, a community organisation based in the Ada refugee camp who work principally with young people. They work with between 20 and 60,000 young people a year, depending on the level of funding that they have. They basically work across all the mediums, all the arts mediums, theatre, dance, song, uh, photography, um, etc. And they have this theory uh, which guides their work, which is called Beautiful Resistance. And it's sort of a, you know, a really delightful concept and the sort of the aim of their work as they describe it is to encourage people to take up beautiful resistance so the young people of Palestine want to live for their country rather than die for their country. Hearing the director of that centre talk, 
seeing the photographs and the sort of stuff around what people had done, the sort of work they'd produced, truly inspiring. And, you know, the impact that it had on young people in terms of actually turning their lives around in terms of giving them a purpose to the resistance to the occupation was really, as I say, really inspiring. And that continuation of the importance of education and culture for the Palestinian people, which began probably hundreds of years ago. Yeah, I think it's quite amazing. You, you go into a, you know, a Bedouin village, which looks to me to be in the middle of bloody nowhere. You're surrounded by people with degrees, masters and PhDs, and they're all back working in their village. Now, I'm interested in a certain factory, <laughs> <laughs> because... Um, I helped to sell some of the produce. <laughs> I wasn't as sex- sexual as you two have been, but we made an effort. Tell us about the Kafia factory. Yeah, it's one of the delights of going back to Palestine was going to visit the Kafia factory, um, Hebawi, in Hebron. We were welcomed warmly. There was a crew from the New York Times there making a story about the factory at the same time as us. We met people in the factory, we looked at all the kafirs they're making, we saw sort of incidentally to that in Manger Square in Bethlehem we were chatting to someone who was running a tourist shop and ended up having this great conversation about why he would only sell Hibawi kafirs in his factory because he didn't want to be selling things from China. And while we were there, someone from Italy, some retailer was there buying bags full of Hibawi kafirs to take back to Italy. So it was sort of really inspiring to see that aspect of solidarity within the local community, within the tourist industry of saying, you know, it's important that we sell our own produce. And the beautiful patterns now. So many. They kept on saying... We'll make any pattern you want. <laughs> and on these machines that are very, very old, very noisy. How big is the place? It's quite a big factory. Not all the machines were working at the time we were there. But, but it's, it's sort of like a warehouse, a reasonable size sort of warehouse that you'd see in the outer suburbs here. It maybe had 10 or 12 of these looms which make this gorgeous, although probably very annoying after a while, clackety-clack, clackety-clack, clackety-clack type sounds. So it's sort of automated, but, you know, the technology, I would have to think, was probably 1930s technology. But obviously beautifully upkept. Some really beautiful things, you know, there was walls where there was a little snippet of all the materials, all the designs I'd ever made, which was stunning sort of section of the wall. It's another area with all the cottons, you know, and the various colours that they sort of utilise and put into the designs. And everywhere were Palestinian flags. (laughs) And again, I mean, the fact that the generosity was what struck me. I mean, I immediately sort of saw half a dozen kafirs that we'd never seen, and they just gave them to us. Astounding, really. Also went to a glass factory. Yes, Hebron is famous for its Phoenician-style glass, which I didn't know about. What they do now, and it's clearly based on 
early ways of doing it. They use recycled glass to make most of their glassware in furnaces that are fueled by recycled motor oil. All the glassware is hand-blown and hand-made, and they infuse it with silver ash to give colour and pattern into the glass. Again, it was one of those things, factory, open to the street, anyone can walk in, Ock Health and Safety, probably not the hugest consideration, (laughs) but fabulous people who are totally generous about letting people watch them at work and producing some stunning glassware. If you'd like to possibly talk about some of the people or a couple of the people that inspire you, just maybe a child or an older person. There was one young man, probably early 20s, university graduate in one of the Bedouin villages. I think what really struck me about this was the the way the people had gone about, even though the Israelis... You know, had all the houses under demolition orders. The methodical way they'd gone about collecting the evidence about their right to the land. So they had, in fact, aerial photographs of this area from 67 onwards. So aerial photographs showing, you know, the, the first tower, observation army tower, then the camp then the settlements, then the growth of the settlements and then the continued growth of the settlements. So that, to me, was really inspiring. He was a university student and he was back in the village. There was an elder there who obviously has been through a whole range of traumatic experiences with the Israelis, who at times was slightly agitated around you know, what was going on. The complete gentle way that he dealt with the elder, the really respectful way, uh, ensuring that we as guests were really respectful, even though we didn't understand, you know, quite what was going on. But that way of actually looking after others was really inspiring to me. The second thing I think that was really inspiring to me was the director of the cultural centre I was talking about before and Arawad a cultural centre who said that you know part of the theory of beautiful resistance and by practising beautiful resistance that the Palestinian people had actually kept their humanity while the Israelis had lost theirs and that to me just rung so true with what I was seeing every minute, every day, that here you had people who the level of oppression and injustice they had to endure, that the understanding that there probably wasn't going to be, that wasn't going to turn around in the short term, but their ability to continue to function in a, not just in a normal way, but in doing quite you know, small inspiring things and their amazing friendliness and welcoming of outsiders just blew me away all the time. I guess one of the memorable things for me was meeting up with people again in Hebron and going to places where we had been before 
where we were able to make connections back with people's families because they were people we've met two and a half years ago, meeting someone who's an activist in Hebron in the market and being able to recognise each other because we have some contact on Facebook and then finding out that this person knows this person and they're all connected because they're all part of a positive resistance movement within Hebron. Really inspiring. And all the women who we didn't see because they were busy cooking meals for us in all the villages and refugee camps where we were fed royally, but the people who were doing the cooking didn't often turn up. I, I guess Samud Freedom Camp was another quite inspiring place for me. It's, again, in the South Hebron Hills. It's an area that had been confiscated, the land had been confiscated by the Israelis, but not utilised. And in May, people had actually gone back and occupied it. From that, they'd built two caves, and basically... Whoever was staying there lived in the caves because the caves offered the best protection and any buildings they'd put up had been destroyed by these Israelis. They'd started to plant things, which was really exciting. But we arrived sort of, you know, as it was starting to get dark and we had talks around the camp and what it meant and what had happened to all the villages around that area and why it was important to reclaim this land and stuff. Um, and then the 60 of us got fed. We got bread and rice and veggies. And then after we'd been fed, I wandered over to the second cave. And it was a cave where there was two single gas burners. And from that, with no running water, no electricity, not only had we'd been fed, but the food had been bought 100 metres from one cave over to where we were sitting outside the other cave... People's resourcefulness and ability to sort of get on with things, astounding. We will never be defeated. We will never be defeated. Indeed not. Finally, Brian, words were written and spoken right through the walk. These were the words of daily hope spoken as call and return, but I'll read the whole thing, each day of the walk, as a way of focusing people about what we were doing and why we were doing it another world is not only possible she is on her way on a quiet day i can hear her breathing you have been shown what is good to act justly to love mercy and to walk humbly we walk this day with those whose freedom is denied we walk with those who have fled war torture and despair we walk in penance for broken promises and political fixes we walk the long road with all those who strive for peace, justice and reconciliation. We walk with those who long to return home. We walk in hope that one day all people in the Holy Land will live in peace as neighbours with full equal rights. Walk softly on the earth. May its beauty surround you. May its wisdom delight you. Its music invite you. May you love and be loved. May you know peace and practice compassion. Rejoice in the earth, in all of creation. Rejoice in life. Ambulando solvitur. It will be solved by walking. And that was Brian Newman, who together with Bruce Francis have recently returned from a visit to Palestine. 
3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. This year, thousands of people seeking asylum will spend another holiday season incarcerated in offshore prison camps and Australian detention centres. Men, women and children are separated from their families, living in horrendous conditions and have no certainty of their future. Join the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre to let them know that they are not alone and we hear their plea for safety. Sign the open letter to deliver a message of hope to people seeking asylum and refugees by Christmas. Visit addmyvoice.org.au, a 3CR supporter. And my final talk for the year with Dr. Margie Beavis, the immediate past president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. I spoke with Margie yesterday morning. Margie, there is a new president in the United States this year. Many people mightn't have known the name Donald Trump at the end of last year, but they certainly know it now. So it's really upsetting to have someone so capricious and with so little foreign policy experience in such a position. And you'd only have to watch the sort of verbal bullying between him and Kim Jong-un to realise you're dealing with two leaders who are really almost not to be trusted with world peace, really, that that it's very concerning. And, And the talk now that Tillerson may be gone from the White House early next year is also very concerning because he has been a moderating force on the President's impulse to leap to aggressive action. There hasn't been a time like this with a president before, has there? A sort of a loose cannon like this? Have we ever had a president like this before? I mean, I'm sure there's been ones that have been hawks, but this guy is not just a hawk, he's an unstable hawk. Very hard to know what will happen next. They're just about to start a really aggressive, the largest exercises, military exercise with South Korea to date. Yet another round of them that do mock bombings of North Korea. So whilst they chide Kim Jong-un for his nuclear weapons testing, and I think it's a tragedy that South Korea, North Korea has nuclear weapons. Very little is said in the media chiding America for these extremely aggressive military exercises that, just like Kim Jong-un, continues to up the ante and make the possibility of war even greater. And we have to add, too, that the, the increasing addition to warfare here in Australia with every time... I mean, we've been doing it forever. Every time America says, jump, give us some more troops and come, come with us, But it it just seems to be getting out of hand now. Well, it's really concerning. In 2014, Barack Obama said all US allies should increase their defence spending to 2%. As a result, Australia's defence budget is actually going through the roof. It's massively ramping up. And this is sort of completely um, decoupled from all the sort of cutbacks in every other part of the Australian budget. And as well as sort of leaping into conflicts with America, we're putting huge amounts of Australian taxpayers' money into weaponry and to defence. And this is really sort of bizarre, given that the last year's defence white paper came came out saying there's no more than a remote chance of Australia being attacked. We're really not only sending troops to US 
battles, we're also becoming an increasingly militarised society. With, with, I mean, we, we couldn't manage to support a car industry, but we're pouring millions and millions and millions of dollars into a weapons pooling industry, and that's very concerning. And, yeah, workers have lost their jobs in the car industry and other manufacturing industries. They, they end up making weapons. Yes, and this is a conscious decision. I mean, we even have our own Minister for Defence Industries, which should be actually titled the Minister for Defence Manufacture, Weapons Manufacture. He's a powerful minister to the, as well as that, so it's very concerning the political approach of this government to weaponry and weapons manufacture. And tying in with that, the sales to Saudi Arabia, where Australia has got four major contracts with Saudi Arabia to sell them weapons, and Christopher Pine flew over to promote these deals, but... When we at NAPW put in a freedom of information, and also when Scott loved him in Parliament, asked for information as to exactly what was being sold, it was all incredibly hush-hush and secret. So there's a huge sort of double-speak in terms of, you know, let's build up manufacturing, but at the same time we're just turning into a weapons manufacturing arms, arms trader, which is very shameful. And we don't know in any other places where these arms are going to and how much is actually they're making out of selling these war machines? The government has on paper what look like regulations about who they export arms to that look fine but when you actually read the fine print we shouldn't be selling them to Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia stands accused of war crimes in Yemen and is certainly one of the most repressive regimes internationally and yet we're happy to sell them weapons and I think the defence export controls that the Australian government sort of says will, will stop us from selling weapons to bad people have very little value. Yes, we seem to have some very nasty friends, don't we? Yes. And yet we've got six peace pilgrims from a Pine Gap exercise last year pleaded guilty and facing up to seven years jail. I'm just hoping that the, the judge recognises that there is no way that these individuals were a threat to national security. They were there to highlight the fact that Pine Gap is an active participant in all the drone attacks that are happening in the Middle East and Pakistan. There's been sort of over 400 civilians killed in these drone attacks and Australia's Pine Gap is part of the targeting for those drone attacks and in addition Australia's Pine Gap is part of the targeting of nuclear weapons by America so Pine Gap is far from a benign surveillance facility it's really an active part of the US military machine. And of course these drones are a psychological attack on the people of the Middle East and other countries where they have them flying over people night and day and people are just terrified and they can't live their normal lives anymore. Yes, Alex Adney Brown, who's a student at Melbourne Uni, is doing a PhD where she actually went and talked to communities, people from communities that have these drones overhead and it's incredibly sad. I mean, for instance, the boys don't play cricket anymore because they don't, it's not safe to gather. Traditional community gatherings where villages would get together and share meals don't happen because they're too frightened they'll get bombed. And women in their own homes now feel that they have to put on their headscarves even just to sort of go out and hang out the washing because they're being observed from above inside their own back garden. So it's, it's changed, it's changing that community and, and a sort of sense of being watched and oppressed by these drones is quite ubiquitous, I think. And I think a lot of people don't understand that this, this drone project, this drone program is really very damaging to societies and damaging to prospects of peace in that region. Nevertheless, although there is war everywhere at the moment, people and communities fight back. And I'm just thinking about the push by the governments to open nuclear dumps in the centre of Australia over the last couple of years. And the communities have fought back on that, and it hasn't happened, has it? 
No. Um, I think one of the big wins for the year was finally putting to bed for this round the international waste dump. The South Australian community didn't buy the, what the Royal Commission was selling. Did a, a tremendous community coming together to say, no, we do not want this waste dump. And finally, the politicians listened. Um, it made no sense whatsoever from any perspective. It was financially likely to be a huge liability and, and really a ridiculous thing. And Mark Parnell, the Green parliamentarian, has finally got a bill through Parliament last week saying that the government would no longer spend money spooking a nuclear weapons, a nuclear waste dump internationally for us to take international waste. And the next one, the next barrier to jump is the, the Australia's own nuclear waste where the government is proposing a dump in South Australia either at the foot of the Flinders Ranges or in a very uh, successful grain-growing community in Kimber. What they're not telling the communities is that the intermediate-level waste facility is way below world's best practice. It's, it's, it's basically just parking this stuff in a shed, and this waste remains toxic for tens to hundreds of thousands of years. But the government has no long-term plan to deal with it, and is just sort of kicking the can down the road and hoping they can persuade a community to take it on board. For 20 years they've been trying to get someone to take this high-level waste, well, intermediate-level waste. It can be classified as high-level waste if you're in France, but here it's intermediate-level waste. And this waste, as I said, is toxic for so long, and yet the facility they're proposing is very much a substandard facility. And we have to remember that that part of the world where the nuclear tests took place many, many years ago, decades ago, the people there suffered and are still suffering? Yes, what's happened at Maralinga, they've had a couple of clean-ups that have been failures. I mean, if you want to look at the record of the government in storing nuclear waste, you only have to look at Woomera, where the drums they stored about 30 years ago are leaking already, and they've admitted they don't actually really know what's in the drums. So, yes, the government's record on storing nuclear waste is, is extremely poor. On top of all that is really depressing that the government wants to increase our production of intermediate level waste within the export industry and it just seems the first principle of managing toxic waste is to stop producing it but our government doesn't seem to have read that particular message. And the sad death of Yami Lester who was round at that time? Yes, Yami Lester who has been a really courageous and outspoken activist on behalf of the people of Maralinga passed away this year and that's very sad after a long illness. He went blind after the nuclear weapons tests on his country. And his daughters, Rosemary and Rosie and Karina Lester, have also been fabulous spokespeople for their land and for their people about the damage that those nuclear weapons testing did to the people of that area. So it's very sad to see him passing away. A big event happening on the 7th of January. It's serenading Adela. And that's a, a really important milestone in the end of the anti-conscription movement back in 1917-18. Yes, it's a fantastic um, community event and anybody who hasn't heard it, I'd really recommend you Google Serenading Adela. So this is a tremendous event and if people haven't looked it up, they should Google Serenading Adela because this is a wonderful group of people from the community coming together to sing songs Famously, the um, English suffragette Adela Pankhurst was imprisoned in 1918 and on one hot night people came and sang outside the bluestone walls of the prison at Pentridge um, with songs. And so this is reproducing that event 100 years later and if you want to be part of it, either as a, a chorister, 
going along and sing or um, just to come and watch, I really think it's worth having a good look at the website because it will commemorate 100 years of anti-war activism. But the big event is next Sunday, 10th of December, Human Rights Day, I believe it is, prize being awarded in Oslo to guess who? <laughs> yes, we're really tickled. The International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons was awarded the 2017 Nobel Peace Prize and a number of us are heading over to Oslo to join in the festivities. Um, there's a sort of four or five day series of events. And here in Melbourne, if people want to join in, there's a free event being held at Swanston Hall, at Melbourne Town Hall, and there are also events in Canberra and in Western Australia and Perth. But yes, we're really very delighted that the prize has been awarded to ICANN. Mind you, it's really the biggest part of the delight is the great push, the impetus it will give to the Nuclear Weapons Prohibition Treaty that went through in July to the United Nations because this treaty is now taking signatories. It's starting to get ratified by countries and when it finally gets to 50 countries, which we think will take 18 months or two years, we will have a treaty that puts, finally puts nuclear weapons on the same footing as chemical weapons and biological weapons. So it's been a very busy year for the Medical Association for the Prevention of War and you have bowed out as president. Yes, I've stepped down and handed the baton to Sue Wareham, who's a fabulous Canberra GP, although she's now just retired, but I'm very confident that we'll continue to work hard to try and make a difference in terms of pointing out the possibilities for peace and peaceful options instead of always going down the more aggressive and warlike route. But you're not leaving? Oh, no. <laughs> I'll stay active. I just won't be in charge. <laughs> just for a couple of minutes to finish with, um, Maggie, the Medical Association for Prevention of War, who are you? We're a group of health professionals, so doctors, nurses, physios, across the spectrum. And also we have non-medical members, but mostly health professionals who work really hard to point out the options there are before people go to war. We want to reduce the amount of warfare there is in the world by promoting um, negotiation, by making people realise that there are other options and other choices. So we get together on alternate months and have dinners, if you want to look at our website, or we meet once a month on alternate months on a Tuesday. It's usually the second Tuesday of the month. Yeah, no, it's, it's one of the best things about working with the Medical Association for Prevention War is you meet all sorts of really passionate people who, like you, are really interested in, in working to make the world a safer place, and it's a, it's a very rewarding thing to do. Okay, we'll have a, a lovely season and um, a good new year and I'll catch you back in um, January next year. That would be wonderful, Jan. Thank you so much for all your talks during the year. Okay, thanks, Margie. <laughs> thanks. And, of course, um, that was Dr Margie Beavers, the immediate past president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. And as I recorded that with Margie yesterday, which was her day off from her busy doctoring, the decision at the court in Pine Gap came down later in the day and the six peace activists went into court and the magistrate was a very good man and said, no, nope, we're not going to send you to jail, pay the fine. I don't think that's going to happen either.
excellent news, dear listener. It's that time of year. We once again are selling two delicious wines generously donated by local winemaking star and 3CR supporter Luke Lambert. At $17.50, these wines are a super bargain, labelled especially for us, and they're even cheaper by the dozen or half dozen. Perfect as a gift or to fill a raised glass to toast 3CR at those summer festivities. Give us a call on 94198377 to order, or you can go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Wines are available for collection from 3CR up until December 22. Ain't no mountain high enough to keep me from them. Union Busters are back on the docks, this time a company called ICTSI. A worker has been sacked for standing up to the bosses against bullying and harassment. A community assembly has come together to support the dock workers and have started a 24-hour protest. We are holding the line, but we need your help. Get down to 78 Webb Dock Drive, Port Melbourne, and join the community assembly at any time of the day or night. For more information and details... Call Workers Solidarity on 0401-516-967. According to the Herald Sun, mayhem in Kensington last night outside the venue where alt-right Milo Yiannopoulos was speaking. On the line is Debbie Brennan from the Campaign Against Racism and Fascism. Debbie, I've seen what's in the Herald Sun. What's the true story? The true story is we have to start with the whole setup. The fact that Milo Yiannopoulos chose Flemington and in the neighborhood, in fact, directly across the street from Flemington public housing flats where the residents are refugees, asylum seekers, immigrants. It shows the provocation already set for that event. Also, Milo Yiannopoulos, being a hate monger who is amplifying all of the worst bigotries that have been building up over years, has naturally attracted and has connections with fascists. Last night, the various Nazi groups that remained splintered and divided, they actually came together to be there last night. So you have the big celebrities. You've got Neil Erickson, Blair Cottrell. You've got Avi Yemeni and, and others. That's pretty much the setting, and of course, the police were there in full form, including their riot gear. From the very beginning, that's the setting where we were. Now, Campaign Against Racism and Fascism had an amazing turnout, given the difficulty in organizing this one, because, of course, due to the the protest, the protest organizing, 
Milo Yiannopoulos, I think he had one venue canceled, and this venue he kept under wraps until an hour before. So we had no idea till an hour before where his event was actually going to take place. But we had probably over 200, about 200 there. So we were there, and we were. Um, our purpose was to be giving a very loud, unified show of opposition to everything that Milo Yiannopoulos stands for and the danger that he represents. We were there, and as, as Milo's fans were kind of lining up to move into the building, they had to listen to us. Cops were there, of course, the whole time. But what happened very soon in the piece was that the, the Nazis who were there at the corner in Racecourse Road started to attack our side. And in fact, one of our marshals, well, he was actually targeted, but he was also trying to defend others who were about to be targeted. They attacked him physically, and he had to defend himself. At that point, they, they, what they did was they were bashing him with a, a flagpole, which broke over him. What happened was that the police intervened, and no surprise, the police took our marshal away. He was removed. It didn't take very long for the police to start moving against residents from the flats who had come out to show their support and their solidarity with us. They were absolutely, the residents were absolutely happy to see us there because to have Milo Yiannopoulos there holding his event with fascists there to support him must have been extremely, extremely stressful and shocking for them. And so to have us there, they, they were there to show their support. They came with their signs and so on. The police moved against them, as did fascists, and so CARF went to campaign against racism and fascism, went to um, defend the residents, and there was that standoff going on for quite some time. This is going on for a long time now. I think that whole protest... We were there from about 6 until about 10, so we're, this is going on over about four hours. When people started leaving, and we weren't to know this, the police moved in on the residents. They moved into the grounds of the estate, and they were there with their riot gear. They were there with their helmets and their shields, and they were absolutely terrorizing the residents for about an hour. And what we all need to keep in mind is that Flemington and the flats in Flemington, they've been subjected to this for years and years and years, racial profiling by the police. They know all about it. So it must have been absolutely terrorizing. Did the police actually go up the stairs or did they stay in the grounds? I don't know. I think they're saying that they did not go into the building. I can't say. But I think just going in there, basically charging at them, and with that history, would have been enough. How is the marshal? Fine. A bit battered and bruised, but fine. Who was arrested? 
I understand. I can't say for sure, but I I have heard that two people have been arrested, and I think one of those two people would have been our marshal who was taken away by the police. Uh, he was released. So, um, in terms of charges against anyone, I haven't received any information about that. And what was the media doing? Well, the media were doing what they do. They were there in in their numbers. Those of us who are part of the media team let it be known that we were there to talk. They weren't interested in talking to us. Most of them. So therefore, their time was spent on taking photos and writing up things that you read in the Herald Sun, and the same kind of story of police having to deal with two extreme groups, and so on and so forth. So that's what the media did. However, the main, and I mean mainstream media, obviously community media is very different. Mainstream media seems to be interested after the fact today in finding out more about what happened last night. I did hear Mr. Erickson being interviewed on the ABC. Did you? That's not the first time, is it? No, it's not. It's not. And this is the thing. You know, um, we're told a lot. It's been said out there a lot that why do we protest? We give Milo Yiannopoulos oxygen. We give the fascists oxygen. But the point is that it's the media that gives them oxygen by interviewing them. And, of course, Milo Yiannopoulos has had most of the mainstream media fawning. The Australian newspaper has just about handed their newspaper to him. He has had that platform handed to him. So, yes, it's, it's uh, not surprising when you say that the ABC interviewed Neil Erickson. From our point of view, it's bad enough that he's being interviewed by the media, but the fact that he's going to Parliament House today, I don't know whether that's actually happened or not. Yeah, um, apparently he is going there today, and that is just... It, it shows where things are at. And I, I think the thing for us to sort of absorb and be very conscious and concerned about is that you have someone like Milo Yiannopoulos who came to do this Australian tour to galvanize the far right and the fascists that exist here to build a movement, to embolden them, to build a movement and with the dangerous ideas that he talks about and he's given that airtime for. And when he's got that platform handed to him and then he is invited to Parliament to speak, then I think that is something for everyone to be very, very concerned about and even more than that, to be ready to organize against because his role here as it is when he does any tour, is a very, very dangerous role, which is why he has to be drowned out whenever that opportunity arises. He's got to be countered. And those who stay behind, the Nazi groups and 
our alt-right that exists here has to be drowned out and organized against by all of us. We've got to come together and be out there in our thousands. And he has been drowned out overseas, hasn't he? Yes, he has. So uh, in places like Chicago and Phoenix, just as a couple of examples, Bay Area and so on, he has been drowned out. In fact, he's been forced to cancel his gigs. Here, it, it, it was good to see that the organizing that was being done had an effect on him because apparently an event venue, I don't know where it was, I think he was hoping to be in the CBD, had, had canceled two days before. And so uh, he had a very difficult time getting a venue. It was a smaller venue, so when he says it was booked out, it was, you know, fewer people booking, um, crowding the venue. And the fact that he had to keep the venue under wraps till an hour before opening time does say that, you know, we had an impact. So that, that in itself is highly successful. I think what we got to do is be able to, you know, stop gigs like that, whether it's Milo's or somebody else's, in the future. Where's he going now? Well, apparently, um, Sydney. So Sydney is organizing against him um, this afternoon, and his last place is the Gold Coast. All right, I can say job well done, Debbie. Yeah, thanks, Jan. Thanks to everybody. Makes me very stressful to be in a place like that for four hours. Oh, listen, and exhausting. And that's Debbie Brennan from the Campaign Against Fascism and Racism. And you are listening to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR, where the time is coming up to 4.57. You could be listening on digital 3CR. You could have an old analogue 3CR. 8.55 a.m. Or you could be sitting there on your computer streaming for a whole week or podcasting 3cr.org.au. This year, thousands of people seeking asylum will spend another holiday season incarcerated in offshore prison camps and Australian detention centres. Men, women and children are separated from their families, living in horrendous conditions and have no certainty of their future. Join the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre to let them know that they are not alone and we hear their plea for safety. Sign the open letter to deliver a message of hope to people seeking asylum and refugees by Christmas. Visit addmyvoice.org.au, a 3CR supporter. The next elections in Malaysia for the 14th Parliament take place next year on or before the 24th of August. It is a widely held truth that the last one was stolen from the opposition, but is the opposition to the only party to win elections in Malaysia since independence ready? That was the question I put to Peter Boyle from Socialist Alliance in Australia, who has recently returned from a short visit. To Malaysia. I think at this stage there's a strong likelihood that uh, the government's going to come in, possibly with a stronger vote than the previous election. I think this is one of the big issues in Malaysia that you know I spoke to lots of people about this being the opposition is in total disarray uh, since the last election. I mean after the last election in uh, 2013 the opposition uh, won 
the majority of the popular vote, some 53% of, of the popular vote, but uh, because of the um, you know rigged nature of the of the electorates and everything else, they only obtained 40% of the seats in the federal parliament. But since then, things have really rolled back towards the opposition. First of all, uh, a significant part of the opposition, the Islamic Party, split off. That basically leaves uh, the remaining opposition now united in the uh, People's Pact or Pakistan Harapan, you know, with only about 40 of the 222 seats in the in the federal parliament. There have been other splits since then. There's a small split away from the Islamic Party that came back into the Pakatan Harapan, another tiny uh, new party made up from an ex-AMNO um, or ruling party MP, you know, who's also joined the opposition party. But I think the big political issue here is that despite the ongoing scandal about uh, the corruption of the Najib government, the 1MDB, the, the, the abuse and corruption, the 1MDB um, National Sovereignty Fund. The big issue that has divided certainly the more progressive element away from the current Pakatan Harapan is the fact that uh, the opposition has embraced former Prime Minister and former notorious dictator, I think, effective dictator, uh, Mohammed Mahathir, as their you know, the effective leader of their campaign. They must have known that there'd be a reaction to that. There is. I mean, there's a massive disappointment. And he's a fairly arrogant person. Most recently, for instance, he reaffirmed that if he had to replay history again, he would carry out the mass arrest and detention of social activists uh, that he, he implemented under the Internal Security Act in the late 1980s, the so-called Operation Lalang campaign which saw environmentalists, feminists, social justice activists locked up without trial for many, many years. Just a few months ago he reaffirmed that he'd, he'd do this again. So he's unrepentant. Now one sign I thought while well, I was uh, just before I got to Malaysia only was there for a few days, but um, of the confidence of Najib is Najib paid celebrated visit to Anwar Ibrahim who's jailed you know, by his government under trumped-up charges of sodomy, who happened to be in hospital at the time, being treated. And Najib and his wife came and visited him, and it was all the teeth with the cameras and everything flowing. And there's a photograph, you know, it's gone all over the place. And if you look at their faces, you can see Najib smiling like anything. And, uh, and Anwar is looking a little bit grim. I think this is, an, this is like a very symbolic thing. It sort of shows the relative confidence of the government relative to the opposition. Now, while I was there, I mean, the, the press, particularly the, you know, the much more critical online critical media, but also some of the mainstream publications like the Malay Mail, carrying many articles about attempts or, or moves by one of the leading Pakatan Harapan opposition party front members, the Democratic Action Party, or DAP, to uh, try and knock off the Socialist Party of Malaysia's outspoken and, and very respected MP, uh, Dr. Jayakumar Raj, because he was elected in the 2008 elections, elections before, and he won the seat in the last one again, and uh, it was considered a bit of a hero because he's uh, 
he single-handedly defeated the leading member of the government, uh, Sammy Velu, in 2008. And, you know, he's a sort of a saint-like figure in Malaysian politics, declares all his assets, which, of course, the ruling party MPs don't, by and large. And, in fact, most of the uh, other opposition MPs have refused up to now to declare their, their financial assets. So um, the DAP has sort of been, you know, saying they're going to contest the seat. The net effect of this will, if there's a trick on it, fight in the seat of Sungai Siput because it's fairly balanced and it's um, first past the post in the Malaysian elections is that the opposition could lose that seat. So really mindless attempt. And, and this has been a sort of a minor issue, you know, around in the opposition in the lead-up to the last general election as well. And it looks like it's replaying again in the elections, which are going to be, as you say, in the first part of next year. Where does religion come into these elections? The big split in the opposition was, was really triggered by a debate about um, you know, the introduction of hudud or more Islamic law into the system being pushed by the party Islam past and that led to the big split, the split off of PAS from Pakistan Harapan. Now, there's two ways of looking at this. One, you could say PAS, which uh, runs Kelantan in the east of peninsular Malaysia, has a long time and there implements, you know, more Islamic laws that impinge on more than the, the Muslim community was pushing for and always has. So it's not a new thing. But what was new following the last general election was a consistent plan by the ruling uh, Barisan National, by unknown particular component party, to manipulate this issue of hudud to divide the opposition. It has to be said successfully, because basically the opposition parties with a bigger base in the non-Muslim communities, you know, basically were horrified, terrified, and that led to the split. Now. So this is there, this question of hood is one of the big sort of issues that flows uh, uh, right around. But I want to say it should not be seen as the only issue. And one of the points that the Socialist Party of Malaysia points out is that really people are asking as they approach the general election, should by some chance the opposition parties win? How much will politics change? And here... You know, there, there, there are two striking issues which are, um, uh, which, which, which are current in Malaysia because it's the question of the record of the opposition parties where they have won state government. So, for instance, in Kelantan, where the PAS has been in government for some time, one of the big ongoing issues is illegal logging. And fundamentally, PAS has been using the, you know, closing its, its eyes or nudge, nudge, wink, wink or possibly dirty deals to allow illegal logging to proceed as a way of getting extra cash. And partly you could say this is because the federal government hogs most of the income from petroleum. Uh, it's a main, one of the, the biggest resources, export resources. And so, you know, it feels, that is the opposition party in Clinton feels, it has to fall back on this sort of dirty sort of logging deals uh, to get income of its own. But uh, this has terrible consequences, not just on the environment, but also on the indigenous communities, which are directly often, you know, the frontline casualty of illegal logging. 
So, okay, that's uh, past, you know, that's in the East Coast, far away, that's a well-known issue. But another issue was highlighted more recently because of extreme weather events in the state of Penang, another state controlled by the opposition, this time by the Democratic Action Party opposition, where its links with uh, developer capitalists, you know, particularly those in the construction industry, you know, have come to the forefront now following massive floods that took place earlier this month. It was a shock to everybody. It only cost seven lives, but it cost a lot of damage in, in the small state of Penang. And, and it was a flood like they had never seen before. And it is largely because the state government has failed to regulate development, you know, particularly in the hill, hillside development where the forests are cleared you know, in order to allow the buildings of often luxury high-rise apartments. And um, this is sort of make flooding, you know, happen more often. Yeah, of course, a freak weather event these days is, as we know, all around the world is becoming more and more common because of climate change. And, and that's another thing it's done. It's actually begun to put the, a discussion of climate change onto the political agenda in, in Malaysia. People are asking, uh, what's, what, what's going on here? You know, this is a relatively uh, wealthy part of the country, Penang, the opposition's control is supposedly very liberal state, and you know well, we, we see the consequences of a government that's too close to developers. In October this year, there was a, a little inkling of what was to come, because there was a massive landslide in which 11 migrant workers were killed in Penang. It was a, a taste of, of, of what was to come on a much bigger scale in early November during the floods. Peter, to an outsider who learnt about the 1NBD scandal, they would have thought that that scandal would have brought the government down, but it hasn't, has it? No, it hasn't. And I, I suppose you could say what um, the Najib government has done, brazened it out. It's been going for years now, the scandal, but, you know, in the end, it's already out. New York Times broken the story. There's a lawsuit. There's legal action underway in the United States. Everybody knows already, you know. However, as I say, you've got to take this into context. That's a shocking example, but it is, is one example of corruption in a situation where there is much wider scale corruption, quite generalized corruption. And, and the opposition can't say it's got clean hands on this issue. You know, basically, the, the, the government has stared them down. And you can see that the, um, you know, there used to be a very powerful uh, movement in the streets, per se, the movement for free and fair elections, which had, you know, big mobilizations, per se one, per se two. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people have been mobilized in the streets on this. That movement is pretty much gone. And I think you can trace it back, trace it back to the point which the opposition, not just the opposition, uh, you know, the more, if you like, mainstream opposition parties embrace Mahathir. But even many of the uh, non-political parties of the opposition, many of the component NGOs and people's organizations in Bursay basically joined in this process by signing on to a declaration against Najib by Mahathir more than a year ago now. I think from that point on, we see the opposition movement, even in the streets, retreating. So that's why, you know, I, I think Najib is 
and none of the accusations against him have been disproved. He's just standing still. But it's the opposition that has gone into political retreat. Surely corruption on the scale that you're talking about must lead to a very impoverished people in Malaysia. You have to say Malaysia is not a very impoverished country by and large. Among the third world countries, it's on a high-end scale. And it, in some respects, there are some features of Malaysian society which are beginning to look more like its tiny island neighbour, Singapore. For instance, some um, 20% of the workforce is now a migrant workforce from Indonesia, from Bangladesh, from Pakistan, from Burma, from all around. And this is a super-exploited layer of the workforce. 20% of the workforce in there. And they're very visible because 60% of manufacturing workers are migrant workers and 50% of the construction industry are migrant workers. And they're super-exploited in so many ways. Many of them are not paid the minimum wage. They don't have the cover, you know, insurance cover. Employers don't have to pay uh, workers' insurance for, for migrant workers. They're basically out of the uh, of the general regulation of society. That's a feature, a growing feature of, of Malaysia. And I, I suppose you could say it's, it's, you know, a lot of it has been, you know, resource wealth, etc. So corruption is, is operating on, on this other layer. Um, you know, taking a slice out of it. people are suffering. You know, there is a big issue of rising cost of living. People who, you know, you'd say probably a minority who are being caught out in various ways. So, for instance, during my visit, I visited one of several small uh, urban communities of people who had, uh, you know, built villages and their homes, obviously, uh, with uncertain, an uncertain title. Either they were allowed, encouraged to build on state land or former plantation land. And these are ongoing battles for people to save their homes, basically. And these sort of struggles you, you still see on an ongoing basis. And actually, one of the things I, I noticed is that you know one of the few opposition parties that actually uh, champions these cases and actually goes and helps organize these residents is the Socialist Party. So, you know, it's that there is a crying need there for an opposition that will do more than criticize the government for corruption, but also in practice, you know, stand with the, with the people who are suffering. Who's standing with the indigenous people? So that's another, uh, another big issue. I mean, it's, it is one of, because I, I have to say, you know, I, I went over to Malaysia as the guest of the Socialist Party. So, you know, obviously, I'm, you know, I should declare my, my allegiances. That played a, a big role, and I mean, some of the opposition MPs have also supported the indigenous people's struggle, particularly in the areas where, there, where there's major logging up in the highlands, Cameron Highlands, you may have heard there, the big fight, uh, etc., in Pahang State and in Kelantan. Actually, in, the, in this coming election, um, the PSM is going to stand leading Orang Asli, or indigenous leader is one of the candidates they're putting forward. So, you know, they've taken up uh, the issue in a big way. But all in all, a, a bit of a, a depressive situation in Malaysia. Yeah, especially, basically, you know, since 2007, the, the rise of the opposition 
uh, I don't mean just the electoral opposition, but the opposition in the streets being one of the most spectacular things in Malaysia. You know, it coincided with um, confidence of a new generation freed from the kind of highly racialized politics of the past, coincided with the rise of um, of internet-based publications as a way of breaking free from ruling party domination of mainstream media. All these things came together in the most extraordinary development. I, I, I think it's a bit sad to see this whole process sort of like start to see. I, you know, I don't want to exaggerate. I think it's it, many of uh, some aspects of this are still in Malaysian society and certainly democratic space has been won quite decisively. Significant democratic space has been won since 2007. But uh, I think in the end it's a bit of a failure of leadership. The fact that the, the, the both uh, the parliamentary opposition and the opposition in the streets, so to speak, was successfully seduced by Mahathir into to coming behind him. I think that was sort of a terrible mistake and has, has had a great cost. And that was Peter Boyle from Socialist Alliance. He's in Sydney and he spent um, a short while in Malaysia, I think it was at a conference, Socialist Party conference. It's coming up to 17 minutes past 5 o'clock. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say, it's okay, you are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. They have the exclusive right to extract the minerals below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has a specially arranged security force. Subscribe today. Call 9419 Union busters are back on the docks. This time a company called ICTSI. A worker has been sacked for standing up to the bosses against bullying and harassment. A community assembly has come together to support the dock workers and have started a 24-hour protest. We are holding the line, but we need your help. Get down to 78 Web Dock Drive, Port Melbourne, and join the community assembly at any time of the day or night. For more information and details, call Workers Solidarity on 0401 516 West Papua was colonised by the Dutch in 1898, promised independence on the 1st of December 1970, with a nine-year period of peaceful transition. But Indonesia had other ideas, and after a sham referendum in 1969, West Papua officially became part of Indonesia. But the people of West Papua have never accepted that control and since that time an estimated 500,000 men, women and children have been killed and many jailed and tortured. Indonesia continues to profit from the rich resources of West Papua, minerals, logging and fisheries. 
Today I'm speaking with Louise Byrne, an activist for West Papua, about her work with West Papua. But first, Louise, you've been an activist for most of your life. It started in Africa, on the north coast of Africa, with Eritrea. How did you get to be there? It seems a long time ago now. I did go there in 1989. I was... um, uh, advised to by a journalist from here, Meryl Finlay, and she came back and said that there was a female dentist working there, she was the only dentist, and that I should go and help her. I was then working in Collins Street at a dental clinic, and so I went there and was there at the same time as Fred Hollows was visiting. He'd just had his baby twins. I think the Eritreans really taught me how to, how to think properly. About politics. <laughs> I'd never had a course before. They were pretty strict and made me sit down and then they came in and examined me. This is all unofficially. I had nothing to do with politics really. I was in the dental clinic but you had to be across everything and so I think really they taught me how to, how to think politically in the way that um, they would like me to. Yeah. <laughs> and what was the situation at that time when you were there? Oh, it was the War of Liberation with um, Ethiopia. It was pretty vicious. The Eritreans, by the time I was there in 1989, they had liberated an area in the mountains where they'd measured the cliffs, the rock cliffs above the valley, and decided that the MiGs couldn't get in there. So that's when they built a, a permanent hospital and clinic and settlement up there. And how many people were involved with that struggle? Most of the population, I'd imagine. Yes, and those that weren't heavily involved or didn't want to be involved were close by in Sudan. There was a, a way to still support but not be involved in the in the front, as they called it, where you actually had to train with the military and run up and down hills. I got out of that, but um, only by a lot of fast talking. Yeah. And was Fred involved in that too? Did no, he Fred get to run up old. and down the hills? Well, the Eritreans <laughs> felt that Fred was an extremely strong man to be at his age and having twins, but they didn't make him do the military training. Moved on to East Timor. How did that happen? Well, Jose Ramos-Horta, I was at a conference up at Melbourne University and Jose was speaking and, of course, as usual, I'd never heard of him or East Timor as I hadn't of Eritrea before I was told. He said, would you help me with my country? And I said, oh, God, I can play the piano, but that's about it. If you want me to do the national anthem at the beginning of a conference, I can do that really well. And so that's how that started, yes. (laughs) But you went to Timor a couple of times before independence? Oh, yes. Yes, I was recording a lot of cultural um, histories and anthropology and music in the mountains and so those sorts of things. And, and the politics sort of was on the side of things because you had to try and keep away from the resistance if you were going to get any sort of interview in the city with people who weren't at the front line of the fighting struggle, yeah, of the militant struggle. Yeah. And what did you find out about the culture and the music? Fascinating stuff. Um, a lot of it had never been heard or recorded, like um, even old musicologists had not heard of some of the stuff I was um, recording right up in the mountains. Well, I found it fascinating, but most musicologists and anthropologists would. I think they were fascinated by my recordings, but I think it was very important to uh, have those recordings published, as I did with a Portuguese record company called Tradison, to sort of broaden the struggle so that the focus wasn't always on Shinana Guzmeo and the resistance fighters. The struggle was certainly 
as usual, broader than that, but they seemed to get whatever attention was accorded to East Timor by the international media, and naturally they got it, yeah. So this helped to broaden things, and it also helped to broaden things down here. I mean, I was working with Paul Stewart, and we ended up making a, a CD of modern Western well, pop music really, um, with Mushroom Records and then another one with another record company and sold them. They were top recording artists in the day, Bono and ooh, uh, there was a whole lot of them. So that money was all slated to a scholarship fund called the Owen Kiak Scholarship uh, Scholarships for Orphans, uh, which at the time were not getting any attention. They're getting more now. But I'm pleased to say that fund is still going. It was bolstered by... Veterans, World War Two veterans. One of them sold his house and gave us half the profit and all that sort of stuff. So that's still going and it's very well managed um, in East Timor. So that was kind of worthwhile on on the part of a lot of people in Australia. Just wondering if you had much difficulty getting the music out of the country. Well, let me think what I was doing in those days. Um, it was a little, well, it was digital, um, but a tiny little recorder but I'd spent a lot of money on the microphone, so it was really top recording. In fact, it, the CD won an international recording for ethnic music, of course, um, in Europe. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. But I was there with my mother and my brother, so we looked like this kind of little family group, which the Timorese were impressed by, but which also served to sort of um, make the Indonesians more relaxed and purposely didn't look as I was hardcore activists, which, which I'm not, but they would have viewed a single person. But in a little group like that with my old mother sort of tropping along and, and my brother there, it seemed okay. Yeah, I didn't have to behave like John Pilcher and <laughs> hide it anywhere. And <laughs> but did you come a, become a political activist once you got back here after you got your music done and still trying to get independence and then after independence? All my activism is politics, really. So you just put a different front on when you do different things, yeah. So after independence, how did it change? I stopped being an activist for East Timor after independence. I always told the Timorese, you get there and then I'm finished. (laughs) And so I was um, very happily retiring for about a week and then Jake Brumbiak was brought to a... One of my wrap-up meetings, actually, and someone said, you better help West Papua, and I thought, oh, my God. So I asked him, you must have people here already. <laughs> you know, I don't need to get involved. He said no. How did you know Jacob Rumbik? Well, I didn't, but he'd escaped from prison in Jakarta. He'd been there for oh, a long time, and he was a political prisoner, and he'd escaped through East Timor. He flew to East Timor dressed as an Indonesian general on an Indonesian military aircraft and he was actually a designated UN observer for the referendum and he badly wanted to see that. So he went there and and was um, up in the mountains and that's a long story. But then when he got back to Darwin, because he was flown out to Darwin, the Australia West Pup Association in Sydney, which has been operating for a long time, paid for him to come to Melbourne for a conference. that Pat Walsh was actually running, yeah. That's where I met him. And from then on? I had to get back on board and do one more independent struggle. <laughs> Have you been? been? No. I decided very early on, especially after East Timor, uh, where it's, it's actually quite difficult to do any sort of good, strong recordings because 
everyone's just so tense. So I thought, okay, this time I'm going to save money that I would normally spend up there and bring West Papuans down to interview them down here. And that way they can have a three-month break, the term of their visa, which I think is really important in war zones because you just get so traumatised. And the Papuans who come here, when they arrive, they're talking really fast. They really need time out, <laughs> you know, if you're a political leadership. So that's what I did. I, I keep spending money bringing Papuans. Well, I did this is nearly two decades ago now, <laughs> um, bringing Papuans down here to interview them. And How did they get visas out? Well, it's always difficult and a lot were refused yeah. in the short term. In, uh, that's a short way of saying it, yeah. So um, you pull every string you can and that's how you do it. Were you involved in the, the outrigger canoe that Coming came to here? Australia in 2006? Well, without saying too much, yes. Obviously, I had much more to do with them after they landed than before they arrived. That was an amazing part played by the government, by Amanda Vanstone. Like, <laughs> I know a lot of people criticise her, but um, I just had to ha- take my hat off to her the way she handled that. She let it be known very early in the piece, after they were picked up and taken to Christmas Island, that she would look after them. And, you know, cynical on me, thinking, oh, my God, what does that mean? But she delivered, and she announced it on a day when all the newspapers were totally concerned with wheat, Australian wheat board scandal in Iraq. There was this big fat man on the front page with a gun, and (laughs) she remember that. There it was. Uh, She had, on page six or eight of the age, that she had granted them visas, and uh, they would be coming to Melbourne altogether. And there had been a lot of negotiations with the Foundation for Survivors of Torture, sort of in the middle, in between that, and it was amazing. How many? 43. Mainly young people? Yep. Yeah, nearly all young people. Um, There was a couple of older ones, but mostly young people, yeah. And what stories were they able to tell you? I had the um, unique uh, pleasure or privilege of telling the media first. Like, there was enormous uh, media coverage because this was the first boat that had arrived for ages. I can't remember for how many years. So there was media, and also the media were released from this bond. This was in 2006. There had been an unofficial curfew on West Papua News. Howard had sent bureaucrats, uh, foreign affairs bureaucrats, down to all the media and to tell them, you know, not to do West Papua. And so I was told that personally by an editor of one of the major newspapers. It's sort of overwhelmed, but... All of a sudden, in 2006, when this boat landed, the journalists were free to go because it was an Australian story. It was as not out of East West Papua, um, and it was based in Weeper. And so, uh, Weeper, there was just journalists landing every day and photographers. And then they followed them to Christmas Island. So there were lots of stories out of Christmas Island. You know, these are the major, major media. So, um, yeah, so they were telling the media their stories, um, which were sort of typical out of West Papua. They must have been concerned about their families they left behind, though. Ah, yes. Did they have different names to protect the families left behind? No, they couldn't because these were names that were going to be uh, officially um, investigated by ASIO as part of the um, security clearances and all that sort of stuff. I I think Jacob and Herman Rumbiak were advising them, don't tell any lies. Keep your names, put your proper birth dates down, all this sort of stuff. Otherwise, they'd be rejected on those just merely technical grounds, yeah. Eleven years later, where are those 30-something, 40-something people? 43. Well, they're around the place. One of them um, has just put in a painting, very good sketch, 
into the Sampari Art uh, Exhibition for West Papua. They're all over the place, really. Two or three of them are at university. Few women, there were fewer women than men. Um, they're marrying and having babies and increasing the Papuan population here. So, yeah, they're all pretty busy and floating around the place. And it's been very hard to uh, learn the difference between living in a war zone under N- Indonesia and their own cultural norms under the, you know, in their villages and then a modern democracy in Australia. It was a very hard shift, but most of them have made it. I think they're going pretty well, yeah. What do you know about the political situation there in West Papua at the moment? Very, very bad. This week is uh, particularly bad because out in Vanuatu, the Vanuatu government has been hosting the West Papuan leadership for a big seven-day conference. And so most of the leaders are down there. And Indonesia, of course, is reacting extremely badly. There is an ongoing siege around the Freeport mine between the Indonesian military and the West Papua Liberation Army. So that's been going on for a month. So that's not actually part of the reaction to this conference in Vanuatu. But, of course, it's all linked in, you know. But the December 1st rallies... Um, which traditionally go on around the world. Whoever's supporting West Papua holds rallies on the 1st of December, as, as they were here and in Vanuatu. So the Indonesian government has gone berserk. I mean, any talk of Indonesia being a democracy <laughs> is like crazy man's talk just based on this, you know, 2017. So this is nearly two decades since Suharto was down. Um, just two days ago, there are groups in Indonesia now called Free West Papua. They're Indonesians, they're not West Papuans. So the group in Ternate, Little Ternate, which is in northern Maluku, you know the famous old Spice Islands from your geography books, um, 103 of those Indonesians were bashed till they were bloodied and bleeding and lying about hopeless, hopelessly injured. And they were bashed individually, 103 were arrested, and they were bashed individually until they chanted, I am Indonesian forever. So it's not as though they were trying to become West Papuans. These were people who believed in the political freedoms that a democracy, which is even talked about in the Indonesian constitution. The same happens to any Indonesians in Jakarta, let alone West Papuans in Jakarta. Yeah. The situation is terrible. Um, Jakawi's got no power, control, and I notice um, the guard of honour he's put around himself more or less to protect his own self um, includes many of the generals' names I've known from East Timor for years. It's a problem, isn't it? They're still there. They're still there. Talking about the current situation there, there was a, a wonderful happening this year where 1.8 million people in West Papua signed a petition. How did it happen and what is the petition? With these things that, which are necessarily in secret, we don't know anything before the world does in the media. And that was the case with this one because it was terribly, terribly secret. To get 1.8 million signatures on paper and then get them in boxes to New York was an indescribable feat. And based on what I know when I was in the Solomons in 2015, when five of these boxes, same thing, came down there and we were carting these huge, like, boxes around Honiara. Yeah, these huge boxes, complaining like crazy about these boxes. 
But it's the most amazing activism, I think. What they did with... There were five of them in Honiara. There were more, of course, to um, uh, New York this year. But to get them out of West Papua, these five huge boxes, they actually sent three lots. One on an aeroplane to somewhere, like Singapore, addressed to someone, and then down Honiara. Once in another way, and a third one. So it cost a fortune. The Highland people, they pay for this because they want their voice heard. And they don't trust anyone, naturally, after all this time, to do it without their signature. So they're the one. uh, I don't know how much money they paid for these five boxes to get to Honiara. Well, five times three is 15. The same would have happened in New York. Okay, They just didn't kind of electronically pass them over there. So it's the most amazing... Well, Manasseh Sogavari, in his speech as Prime Minister of the Solomon Islands at, in the General Assembly, said, the West Papuan people have spoken. They are here in huge numbers, and that's what he meant by the 1.8 million people. Now, on the other hand, hundreds were arrested, tortured and incarcerated. There's a price they pay. It's a pretty high price, yeah. But they've done it twice now, and I can guarantee you they will do it again. I'll just give you one quote. We have already been killed, tortured and raped. We cannot be scared anymore. It's, uh, yeah, heartbreaking. That they got the result. Yep. You're listening to Tuesday Home Time on Melbourne radio station 3CR, and I'm speaking with activist for West Papua, Louise Byrne. Is it because of the wealth of West Papua that they're hanging on to it, or is there more than that? Well, there is the wealth. I mean, uh, Freeport alone is the major contributor to the Indonesia um, Indonesia revenue. And But besides Freeport now, every bit of land in West Papua now has been surveyed. Um, I've got that from the geologists and those people that sort of x-ray the land. There's no land left unsurveyed by private mining companies um, from Malaysia, Japan, America, of course, but... Uh, more or less everywhere. And this has been known going back to the 1930s, hasn't it, the wealth of the country? The wealth of the country has been known, but the surveying is a step up. And that's been happening, well, uh, really since the demise of Suharto. Suharto, for all his evilness, more or less kept West Papua uh, a little bit separate. <laughs> I mean, the military had full reign there, but uh, the private companies weren't in there. That has changed totally. West Papua, for many, is almost unrecognisable now with the amount of, of foreign money in there. Transmigration. Transmigrations escalated to places that there's never been transmigrants under Sahato, little Numfo Island, just like one of... Life's big paradise places. The Papuans there are being forced off their traditional land to make way for Transmigrazi institutions. Are any people managing to escape still? Not many that I know of. And of course they can't go across the border into Papua. They probably get sent back. Yes, that's, um, yes, that's, that's stopped. Of course the border's not so well managed that West Papuans don't run over there, but as far as taking anything further, um, like applying for refugee status or anything like that, you can't do that now because the PNG government is so heavily paid by Indonesia. PNG just can't kind of get out of itself. Despite what you're saying, there is a, a growing support for West Papua 
right around the world, isn't there? For West Papua, the situation really changed in 2015 and it's now a sort of uh, like a, what do you call it, a non-stop car? What do you call those things? <laughs> it can't stop now. It's rolling. The West Papuans call, finally we came out of the darkness. That means isolation. And it changed when Prime Minister Sogavari of the Solomon Islands announced that West Papua could be part of the Melanesian Spearhead Group. So that's an inter- intergovernmental organisation. And so that just started this ball rolling. And as part of that announcement, uh, Sogavari was obviously under enormous pressure um, not to do it and did it. And uh, I can remember when he made the announcement, I was there and we were all sitting there in the boiling, steaming heat. big Indonesia delegation had just walked in and really I thought, oh, my God, this must be the ugliest looking people on the planet. Why did they send this lot? I mean, a lot of Indonesians are fantastic looking and all that sort of stuff. But this lot, you know, there was the head of the UN mission. They seemed like really ugly. <laughs> anyway, they walked right across in front of us and sat behind the Melanesian spearhead group bureaucrats. They got up and just took them back immediately and put them at the end of the, the, the tiered awnings, way past us, out in the boiling sun. You know, I'll never forget that moment. But it was Sogavari's moment. The journalist told me that uh, he made a speech that was Martin Luther, like a Martin Luther King thing, except he did it in four minutes. You know, it was beautiful. The journalist told me afterwards that they'd got the script from his Prime Minister's office two minutes before he went on stage. And they said, Louise, he went off script. And then all the Papuans and all the Solomon Islanders said, no, the Holy Spirit descended on him. See? It was the same sort of thing, but it was an amazing speech. Everyone should listen to it. It's so inspiring. I play it all the time. Every time I speak, I play it first. Manese Sogavari is a very experienced politician. This was his third time as Prime Minister. I don't know. I think the Papuans and the Solomon Islands are probably right. It might have been Holy Spirit stuff because he took off. And he wasn't taking no from any of the Melanesian spearhead group people like Peter O'Neill, the Prime Minister of PNG, and Vanuatu, which had been sort of, at that time, uh, was being really muddled around with money, with Indonesian money. And so anyone who said no, he said, OK, well, I will just um, go out to the Pacific Island group and pull in people. So he formed a Pacific Coalition for West Papua, whose express purpose is to get West Papua back onto the UN Decolonisation Committee. So that's what he did. So he's, been, he's got eight of them now, and they go around like a pack of dingoes to UN conferences, <laughs> and it's just amazing to watch them. They all work out their speeches, you know, wonderful. They, the way they're working together, it does look like a dingo pack. Really, it does. And when you listen and analyse the speeches, how carefully crafted they are, and it's just it's quite enlightening, actually, to watch. Because um, these Pacific Islands, it's not as though just because they're, Pacific Islanders, they all know each other and know each other really well. I mean, they're separated by thousands of miles. One of the key people is um, the Prime Minister, or, or maybe it's the President, of Marshall Islands. You know, um, this poor little Marshall Islands place of, God, they've got their own problems with nuclear, the effect of nuclear fallout. And they're miles from anywhere, if you look on the map, you know. So they only meet at these big conferences, the Pacific Island Forum, and, you know, so in the UN things. So, yeah, that's kind of been quite inspiring and I think it's had an impact on Western activists to see the Pacific Islanders out there really, really working and on other governments 
as soon as that was sort of arranged, the Pacific, if you can see the map, and then across the equator right around to Africa is the African-Caribbean-Pacific group, which is a old group, and they meet and um, they basically came out of anti-colonial um, stuff in the 1950s. And it's not regular meetings, but they all know each other and um, have a different feeling or regard for them than they have with Western um, politicians. They've passed motions on West Papua. The West Papuans have now opened the United Liberation Movement of West Papua. They've opened an office in Kampala in Uganda. And we've got people out there working now. So that's kind of, you know, yeah. The aim is to win a majority of the UN Assembly, which is 192. You have to get a two-thirds majority to get a motion passed. I think it's 120. Could need 120 votes. Talk about the influence here in Melbourne. The influence here in Melbourne. Three years ago, there's an amazing doctor, which probably everyone from here knows, Joe Toscano, and he offered to help. And he said he would uh, get 50 or 60 Australians to put in $30 a month into a rent collective, and that pays for the rent on an office. Before that, we we're all working in our homes, like most, you know, most activists. So we've got this five-star energy office down in Docklands. My God, it should come. You know, sometimes when activists do come, I have to explain myself and say, oh, look, the Australians are paying for this, not us. <laughs> but that was decided to do that as a sort of visionary thing for West Papua. And I noticed a lot of the Timorese, when they went back and the government paid for buildings, they, they were buildings that could have been built in the 70s or 80s in terms of energy stuff. I realised, because there are a lot of activists here telling them about energy stuff in the 90s, um, you actually have to kind of live it. The Papuans are living it down there in Docklands, living energy principles. And although I seem to be the one that takes the visitors around and shows them how the rain falls through the roof and then on through the floor and gets collected under Collins Street for all our toilets and our little um, community garden and the soccer field, half half soccer field outside where, you know, there's 300 offices in there but you don't even realise it. You think there's about 50 because it's just all design principles. The Papuans, when they go back, I know, will sort of think, oh God, what was going on in Docklands? Why can't we get it looking like that? And Because uh, it's actually quite hard. When you look at an energy building, like the Melbourne City Council's is six star, ours is only five, you don't realise it from the outside. You actually have to go inside and Someone was doing a study on it, RMIT, and I, I transcribed all the interviews, and I thought, oh, my God, this goes on, and you don't see it. It just looks like a normal old building. So you really have to know your stuff um, to be understanding how energy influences architecture. So what do they do there? The West Papuans? Mm. Uh, well, it's called the Department of Foreign Affairs, Immigration and Trade, so it's part of the Federal Republic of West Papua. West Papuans, uh, maybe I need to explain a little bit. You can't compare it with East Timor. I made that amazing mistake in 1999, thinking, oh, well, I'll just finish my PhD and go through and swap East Timor for West Papua. And then I found out, oh, my God, it's only 100 kilometres away. But what a different struggle. Totally different, you know. And it's taken a long time to make what we could see as a peak body, which, uh, which leads... Um, the equivalent of a nation state, you know. Finally, they made it in 2014, formally. It was all the time shaping itself because there's 330 tribes there, not 33 like East Timor, so it was a bit harder. And also, if the West Papuan leaders at, of any of those generations had talked like Shanana and said, OK, I'm in charge of this struggle, you do exactly what I say, and 
do you agree to that or not, they wouldn't have made it. The, the, their own people probably would have got rid of them, you know. There's much stronger sort of um, constraints in West Papua and that's why it took them much longer and it's so much bigger. You can't compare East Timor with West Papua. Back to the office, Louise. And while we do the normal things, you know, transcribe, write documents, make brochures, and at the moment we're running a wonderful art exhibition for West Papua at the ACU Art Gallery in Brunswick Street. It's called Sampari 2017. What does Sampari mean? Sampari is, well, it means directly the morning star. It's the name of the morning star in the mytho-historical story of West Papua. That's on the north coast, yeah? Tell us about that. Oh, it's a great story. Once upon a time, there was an old man, and he was marginalised in the village, and and the marginalisation shows up in this man as he was covered in scabies. And basically, the villagers kicked him out, and he was living on the margins. And like all prophets, uh, they have these amazing uh, visions and experiences, um, psychological experiences, we would say. Uh, after that, he realised he actually had a, mis- a, a purpose to carry, but he still wasn't quite sure what it was. So one morning, he noticed that there was no sap left. You know how out in the Pacific Island, the people put a, a little bamboo cup to and cut the tree and the sap falls into it and from that they make their fermented drinks of alcohol. And he noticed there was no sap left. And so he thought he would have to catch the thief and to cut a long story short because, you know, in all these mythological stories, each little event then goes off and there's another great story around that one. So I'm cutting a whole lot out of here. Eventually, one morning, he caught the morning star who was actually stealing his juice and the star offered him all sorts of things. Sampari offered him all sorts of things to be let free. And the old man kept saying no. And finally the star said, OK, I will give you the understanding of salvation and the keys of eternal life if you let me go, because I have to get back into the, into the sky, into my spot, before, otherwise the sun won't come up. So there's the story of uh, Sampari. And there is another issue, a big issue there. It's going to be a debate. What we do, we're so lucky to have the gallery. Australian Catholic University gives us a gallery for 10 days um, every December. And so we're just so lucky that we can't just bear to have just an exhibition because sometimes exhibitions, you know, the place doesn't fill up. And so we put events in there every, every day that we can and every night. So one of the events is a debate. It's between Melbourne University, Debating Society, and our rent collective, who pays our rent. And the rent collective people are sort of old lefties, you know, very experienced activists, and they've elected to take the no side because they said they're too old and experienced and it's quite hard to make a no case. And they think that Melbourne University kids are young. And I said, well, they're all second and third year university, they're law students, they're not that young. Um, but anyway, so the, our rent collective is doing the no case. Last year, the, we had a debate called Should West Papua Be Independent? And it was two universities, Melbourne and Monash. And that created the biggest furore. And eventually, two months later, there's a whole lot of steps in between. I won't tell you because time's short. Indonesia pulled out of the war games in Darwin. But I traced it back. It was that uh, little thing. Great. Because it looked like on the marketing card there were five universities involved. 
because there were two, and then there was a Catholic university, there's three, and then there was the guy who designed the cards, who was from ANU, so that's four. Let's <laughs> get adding up. And I think, you know, just got a bit strong, and so out they came. Mm. So what are you going to do this year to stir them up? I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, it's hard to pull off, isn't it? Well, I wasn't trying to pull it off. I was just trying to get a debate up last year. But this year, you never know. I mean, Indonesia, throughout its own history, has always managed to fall over its own feet. And undoubtedly, they will do it again. What's the art exhibition? Where is your art coming from? We send it out all over the world, the call-out, about six months ago. And so we get art from the Netherlands, America. This year, we've got this most amazing Aboriginal work by Lisa Walp. Another amazing work by Larissa, who's from the Disability Project. She's done an amazing kind of work. Uh, we get Papuans, of course. Um, the standard is actually getting higher and higher. I remember the first year, which was in 2015, I thought, oh, my God, this is a little bit like West Papua 101, you know, and it showed the artists were just responding not in a very studied way. That is deep and dramatically in the, in the three years that we've had this. And, and so this is definitely the... It's showing our artists are getting deeper and deeper. And in the events that we have, like we've got a poetry um, night on the um, 15th, you can tell the poets now are getting deeper. They're not just responding to sort of some media thing on the human rights, which is kind of legitimate in its own way. But once the poets start getting deeper and deeper, then you get these amazing words and interpretations and all that sort of stuff. We've also got a Venus Forum on the um, Thursday, the 14th of December. I know these are all very late in the year, but I can tell your listeners that to come along, have your party in our gallery instead of going to the pub. There's wonderful presents there to buy. You don't have to go looking in miles or wherever you normally do your shopping for presents. We've got amazing books, CDs, art, posters. We've got everything you could ask for in there. Now, this Venus Forum, last year, the person who organised the art exhibition was asked, what does Sampari mean, as you've asked me this year? And she said, I don't know. And she came out, she was so humiliated. She said, oh, God, Louise, that's... I'm never going to do that again. I said, well, well, well let's have a seminar on Sambari. <laughs> so this is actually what it is. It's come out. We've called it the Venus Forum. So that we can bring in, there's a, a Jewish scholar, a rabbinical scholar, and he said, oh, but we don't, um, we don't look at the morning star. We don't talk about the morning star. And I said, yes, but the evening star is the same star. And he said, oh, you're right. So he's coming, and he's a wonderful storyteller. And, of course, the West Papuans and the Torres Street, uh, Torres Islanders, because not many people seem to realise that the Torres Islanders are Melanesians. We better start spending some money up there, otherwise they might go the other way. <laughs> Divorce Australia and join, join independent West Papua. And, but the most amazing, I want to tell you, Bev, is about Mr Chris Rudge on the, on the Venus Forum. He's from the Melbourne Observatory. And he said, and when I went to ask him if he'd speak, he said, and why would you study that most evil of planets? And I said, oh, I don't know. Why not? I was, I was a bit shocked. And he said, it is so hot, not even a microbe can live there. It has an atmosphere that is totally drenched in sulfuric acid. And when the Russians sent in a probe, it dissolved in two weeks. And I said, oh, my God. I thought he was trying to get out of it. And I said, oh, but that's the perfect counterintuitive. 
to our romantic understanding, you know, of Venus. And I said, you must, you must want to speak at it. And he said, oh, of course I'll speak. He said, because you haven't realised where you come from, do you, Louise? And I said, no. What are you about to tell me? And he said, Captain Cook didn't come here to discover Australia. Captain Cook came here to observe the passing of Venus in the Southern Hemisphere. I will tell you those stories as well. <laughs> so he's going to be wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Tell me where the ACU Art Gallery is. 26 Brunswick Street in Fitzroy. Which is between Gertrude and Victoria Street? Yes, yes. Yep. You can catch the tram down um, and just hop off on the first stop in, in Brunswick Street. Yeah. And how many days and which days? Uh, we're launching the art exhibition this Friday night, which is the 8th, and it goes through till the 17th. Go to Google and, f- and do Facebook Sampari. Uh, it's all there. Or you can Google the West Papua office in Docklands, and we've got web pages there all about it. Yeah, there's plenty of advertising around the place about this, this exhibition and all the events in the gallery during the exhibition. Well, thank you, Louise, and thank you for your work. Thank you. Thank you for having me in here. And that's Louise Byrne speaking about West Papua and that exhibition. I'll give you the details in a moment, but it's coming up to five minutes to six o'clock. You are invited to Sampari Exhibition, celebrating West Papuan culture. Sampari, a series of events supporting the West Papuan people's goal for self-determination. Art, discussion, spoken word performance, debate and Melanesian food and culture. Friday, 8th December at 6pm till Sunday, 17th December. ACU Gallery, 26 Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. Go to Sampari Exhibition Facebook or DFAIT West Papua website. Sampari, brought to you by Federal Republic of West Papua Women's Office, a 3CR supporter. Union Busters are back on the docks, this time a company called ICTSI. A worker has been sacked for standing up to the bosses against bullying and harassment. A community assembly has come together to support the dock workers and have started a 24-hour protest. We are holding the line, but we need your help. Get down to 78 Web Dock Drive, Port Melbourne, and join the community assembly at any time of the day or night. For more information and details... Call Workers Solidarity on 0401 516 